June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to better outcomes, like more pipeline, higher win rates, and larger deals. We call this Deep Sales, and we've built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com trial. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 
200, or 2 million. Atlassian Software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Welcome to another edition of Ion Travel. I'm Peter Greenberg, and on this podcast, we come to you from my makeshift quarantine studio in my locked-down New York apartment. It'll feature two special COVID-19 conversations with Marriott CEO Arnie Sorensen on how the giant hotelier is doing and the road ahead, and with the legendary Robert Crandall, the former CEO of American Airlines. The coronavirus has upended one of the largest industries in the world, travel and tourism. Uh, And just recently, the the latest unemployment figures are 6.6 million, doubling the ones that were filed last week. Nearly 10 million people filing for unemployment, 75 million jobs at risk internationally, globally in the travel and tourism industry. And I thought it would be a good idea, in fact, an imperative idea, to talk to the major players in this industry to talk about how we adjust and how we move forward, uh, how do we just cope with this unprecedented event. Uh, joining me now, the president and CEO of Marriott, uh, the legendary, I can say legendary, Arnie Sorensen. How are you, sir? I'm good, Peter. How about you? Nice to see you. And nice to see you. You know, you you had a very heartfelt video that you released to your team members and your staff a couple of days ago. And in that video, you said in the 92-year history of the corporation, you had never seen never experienced a situation like this. The devastation was worse, as you said, than 9-11 and the recession of 2008-2009 combined. And those numbers are still getting worse. Well, it's, it is still breathtaking, even though we've uh, uh, sort of had it weeks, maybe months to absorb this. Obviously, if you start with what happened in China in late January, you see by early February business down in that market 90%. It's, of course, about, about a month later where it starts to move to the rest of the world. And we, we start to confront the, the uh, gravity of the situation. But even now, weeks after that, uh, every day is literally breathtaking because the impact to the business, the impact to the travel industry is unimaginable in uh, normal circumstances. I mean, here you are, the corporation of 30 different brands, more than 7,000 properties in 131 countries around the world. And this is probably the first time you've ever been confronted with having to basically close so many of them and furlough so many employees. Yeah. I mean, just as a reminder that the worst prior quarter I ever experienced, and I believe it was the worst in the travel industry, although my history is only 25 years, not longer than that, uh, was the fourth quarter. We had both both the tech bubble burst, so we had a recession already underway. And then, of course, we had the horrific events of 9-11. That final quarter of 2001 was minus 25% top-line revenue. We're now running about minus 80 to 85% globally all around the world. So if you're running minus 85%, it's essentially a market that's collapsed. It it is a, well, and it's no wonder, right? I mean, we have governments all around the world that are, are telling us with reason uh, we want you to stay home. Uh, we want you not to interact with other people. Uh, keep social distance. It's the phrase that's used over and over again. And of course, uh, traveling to a hotel is not very consistent with that government advice. Right. And when you're in 131 countries, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I think the uh, obviously there are some positive signs. I, I try and give myself positive signs. If you let me share one with you every now and then. Um, China, we are starting to see some recovery. We're seeing people get back to work, factories reopen, 
and we're seeing occupancies beginning to build. So there is hope, I suppose, in the China story that the virus spread can be tampered or stopped and people can then get back to normal. I think the other uh, point which is interesting is there are a number of places around the world with ho where hotels are being used to take care of healthcare workers, as an example, uh, near hospitals, both in the United States and Europe and in other markets around the world, where healthcare workers are worried about bringing the virus home uh, to their loved ones. And so think that if we can, if we can stay someplace nearby, they're not uh, uh, diagnosed with the virus, but nevertheless, they want to be extra cautious. Uh, and so there's some uses like that which are underway, but the normal travel rhythms have been entirely upended. Well, speaking of the rhythm, it doesn't uh, you know, operate in a vacuum. Airlines are either not operating at all, uh, they park their planes all over the world, operating on ridiculously small schedules. The load factor here today uh, for Delta Airlines out of LaGuardia is 13%. That's not sustainable. That's right. Yeah, it's not sustainable. And of course, we, we have uh, in the uh, phase three uh, legislation that was passed by the U.S. government last week, signed by the president, I believe, last, last, late last week, uh, we have uh, the biggest stimulus, uh, economic stimulus bill of all time. And of course, uh, significant dollars earmarked for uh, the air, airline industry. Uh, and uh, of course, they're lining up to get uh, those arrangements finalized, given that the legislation has been done. Right. But the biggest problem, of course, is to put this in perspective, back in 2008, 2009, the most number of unemployment claims ever filed, 665,000. We're now at about 10.1 million. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it is um, the other thing that was in that stimulus package, which I thought was so very powerful, is uh, political leadership in the United States. And this has been done in Europe in a number of countries, the UK, Germany, uh, as two quick examples. Uh, they have basically said, we're going to provide enough uh, resources to make sure that folks are protected during what hopefully amounts only to a few months of uh, loss of work, right? And, and that might be a furlough, uh, word we use at Marriott, of course, because we very much expect and hope that we can bring our people back quickly. But the unemployment insurance regi regime is been buttressed significantly. The benefits are better. The availability is much quicker. Uh, and we're hopeful, it's a bit of an experiment, of course, but we're hopeful that with tools like this, we'll be able to bring people back quickly to work and the disruption to their lives will not be as nearly profound as it would have been otherwise. Of course, in travel and tourism, you've got to connect all the dots. It's not just hotels, airlines and cruise lines. It's retail, it's restaurants, it's tour guides, it's bus drivers, Uber and Lyft guys. And the concern that I'm hearing on the street is that even with this $2.2 trillion stimulus plan, I call it a recovery plan, I'm waiting for the stimulus, but yeah. but, but if it, you're actually going to call it that kind of a plan, it may already be oversubscribed. Well, there's, there's already debate about whether there needs to be a phase four plan, uh, and there's conversations on Capitol Hill about already about what would be in the phase four plan. I think there are a number of uh, reasonable voices that say, well, wait a second, the phase three money hasn't even gotten out the door yet, uh, so we should sort of see what happens. I think that's I think that's a, an interesting debate. I think the more fundamental debate, of course, is an even harder one to answer, and that is what happens with the spread of the virus, uh, and are we able, as societies in the United States and in other markets all around the world, to say within the next month or so, maybe six weeks or so, oh, it looks like we have uh, changed the arc of the spread of this virus. 
And now we can start tiptoeing back out of our homes and back into normal life. You know, when we, when we last left off, we were talking about, you know, when do we come back here? Uh, but let's go back to some of the nuts and bolts here. At one point, Marriott, not at one point, a month ago, you guys are enjoying unprecedented growth. Uh, I, I remember talking to you last year. You were opening up one new hotel every 14 hours, right? Yeah. It, it, unimaginable, but you were. Uh, obviously, that work has slowed down, if not stopped for the moment. But when you take a look at the business model of Marriott itself, you don't have that much equity in the hotels that you manage in terms of the total number of hotels. So I'm looking at the, the, at the effects down the line here with not just your company, but the people who own that real estate, the people who own those buildings, who do they go to for help? Right. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. And, and of course, something our, our hotel guests don't understand all that well, but the 7,000 or so hotels in our system, we think represent 350 to $400 billion of real estate. Uh, and Marriott, of course, a, a big, substantial company, but not big enough to own real estate of that uh, magnitude. So every hotel we have is owned by a separate real estate investor, sometimes operated by them, sometimes operated by us uh, for their account. But each one of those is sort of its own business. And, of course, they've got to uh, be able to navigate through this tough environment just the way uh, we try and navigate through this tough environment. It varies all around the world based on who these uh, owners are. Sometimes they are public companies, sometimes they're family, sometimes they're government-owned enterprises. In the world. Of course, each of them will have a bit of their own uh, sets of challenges as they go through it. Uh, in the U.S., the uh, Phase Three stimulus bill does include provisions both under the Small Business Administration and under the so-called larger company support that will be available to uh, companies like that to either service mortgages that they've got, maybe service payroll, maybe service lease payments that they've got to, got to do. All of that, of course, is being set up now, but we were engaged in conversations on the Hill to try and make sure that the stimulus provisions were available to precisely companies like that. It's interesting because under the stimulus package, there's a provision there in the SBA loans for those brick-and-mortar travel agencies and for the guys who own the buildings. Uh, it's only $350 billion, but what's interesting is I've been talking to the banks, and what they're telling me is they're overwhelmed now with applications. I mean, overwhelmed, and they're worried that that will be oversubscribed. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, you've got, uh, even before the legislation passed last week, you've got many, many companies, private and, and public, that are going to their banks and basically saying, we've seen our revenue take a dramatic hit, maybe disappear, maybe maybe just uh, be meaningfully weaker. Uh, and we need to rethink what kind of financial resources we have to ride through this weak environment. Now, at the same time, you've got, interestingly, some uh, companies which are on the other side of this. If, if you're selling grocery, if you're delivering uh, uh, meals to somebody's homes, uh, if you're um, provider of technology sometimes, like the technology we're using now uh, to do something that we would have done in a, a different way a month ago. Um, all of those companies are uh, hiring and uh, looking at sort of the other side of this, where demand has dramatically increased. But this is the time when the financial community has got to step up and help those who need incremental liquidity to get through the number of months that it takes to get back towards real life. I know it's early to ask this question, but i got to ask it anyway because we're all sitting at home. We have time to think. Have you given some thought to the fundamental changes that may be awaiting for us as to how we travel, where we travel, where we stay? Well, uh, Peter, you share uh, my love for travel, and uh, I'll, I'll confess to being anything but unbiased in this. Uh, I think there have been trends that have been underway for decades. You've 
documented and uh, done great journalism on many of them. But I think those trends include the fact that we love adventure. We love to see the world. We love to be exposed to new foods and new places and places that we've only read about. And I, for one, cannot believe that the coronavirus is going to upset those trends. Now, if you look at business travel or if you look at the meeting space, uh, we're obviously all experimenting with new tools, new technology tools. Well, I shouldn't say new tools because for 20 years at least, people have been saying every time we got into a recession, well, teleconferencing is finally going to take off. And it never We're never going to get back. To, and it never works. It, it, well, it, it um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm sort of uh, glad when it doesn't work. Uh, but I think there is still something about getting together with people in person, uh, having a chance to, to break bread together, having a chance to see expressions live, uh, having a chance to take the unpredictable side of uh, more, more hours together than you would ever have by teleconferencing. Uh, and I suspect even that will come back. But people will need to know that it's safe. Uh, and I think that obviously is something we can't control, but depends on experts in the healthcare space. It may depend on a vaccine ultimately being available that will finally comfort people that it's okay to get out and get about. You know, you, you bring up an interesting point going back to 9-11. If you take a look at American travel habits immediately following that, nobody wanted to fly over a long distance or large bodies of water because they were worried of terrorism. Today, the subtext, they're afraid of flying long distances so that if somebody coughs, they'll get quarantined and won't be able to get home for weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and obviously, we've read a lot about uh, the negative air pressure in planes and, and uh, the, the tools around uh, disinfecting planes and the rest are getting dramatically better. I actually think the airplanes probably are a fairly safe place uh, to be. But still, you know, well, they're a very safe. They're a very safe place to be today because there's nobody sitting next. Get through the, the uh, distancing phase of this, and I think ultimately get to a place where people are comfortable that they can get, get back up. Well, let's talk about social distancing, because what we took for granted a month and a half ago is now a big question mark, right? Can we go back to a concert? Can we go to a sporting event? Can we go to a convention and a meeting? Can we go to a corporate retreat? What will the protocols and behaviors allow us to do in, in, a, in an environment that was designed for groups and designed for large large meetings? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, again, we'll take it a step at a time. I think the first the first step will be individual or family uh, travel or uh, small restaurants or, uh, you know, places where, where you're not intimidated maybe by the size of the crowd. Uh, and that already, again, using China as the sort of current positive example, we're seeing business to restaurants come back up. We're seeing uh, traffic come back up. Uh, we're starting to see domestic uh, air travel come back up. But it's mostly... Well, it's a, virtually 100 percent, actually, China uh, demand at this point. It's not international demand, long, long haul flights and the like. I suspect that will come a little bit later. Uh, and for even there first, it'll be, does Peter Greenberg get back on a plane to go to Asia? That will happen before the big convention happens, because there are different uh, different risks associated with that. But again, that's all going to come back when we start to feel like it's safe. And, and uh, that will be driven by healthcare. It'll be driven by government policy. Uh, and it'll be driven by the statistics we see out there about the spread of the virus. You know, I asked my audience to send me emails with any of their questions. And I was overwhelmed and inundated by two areas, one, both of which will probably not surprise you. One is, 
this is Johnson booked the trip on, a, on an airline with a hotel, with a package or a cruise. And obviously it was canceled and wants to get a refund and can't get one. Uh, and they're going crazy. Right. Uh, I'm sure you hear that every day. Oh, we do. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And, and uh, we have uh, in the first instance, we, we um, of course, provided cancellation even for prepaid rooms. We, we basically said, we'll we'll still provide cancellation if you're in January going in or out of, of China. Right. Because that was the epicenter of this. I think we got to a place where we said you can change any reservation for any time, even if prepaid uh, by April 30. Uh, and that will uh, be done without cancellation fees. And of course, we'll we'll probably move that by another month or two, something like that. We'll we'll have to see how this goes. And the uh, R word, the refund. Well, the refund comes with it, uh, absolutely. So so uh, that's available to folks. Now you get to um, uh, uh, what reservations made for late in 2020 or even in early 2021, and you know. I, for uh, not surprisingly, we would say, well, let's wait a bit uh, and see what happens, uh, because we're we're optimistic that we'll be back to a normal time. And we'd like to sort of encourage people to to continue to plan for the future bookings that are being done for for that, that far out in the future. But people are a little wary and a little bit less certain than obviously. What extraordinary times we are living in, in the world of travel. The entire world has essentially been upended when it comes to one of the largest industries in the world and the largest services industry in the world. Joining me now, a legend in the travel industry. I hope he allows me to call him that. We've been friends for many, many years. We've worked together on so many different stories together. He's the former president and CEO of American Airlines, the legendary, I said it twice, Bob Crandall. How are you, sir? I'm well, Peter. How are you? I'm okay. We're all sitting here watching, or I should say, sitting sailing or flying in uncharted waters or uncharted airspace as the world of travel is essentially ground to a halt. Yes, it certainly has, Peter. It's the most extraordinary thing, uh, really, that any of us have ever seen. And I suspect the most extraordinary thing we will ever see, sort of the modern version of the bubonic plague. Exactly. And you know, to think that a month ago, everything was essentially normal. And then all of a sudden, in a very short span of time, every airline in the world uh, operating international flights essentially ground to a halt. Every other airline has parked the majority of its fleet, if not its entire fleet. Some airlines will not come back at all. Uh, hotels are closing buildings on almost an hourly basis. We see cruise ships that are just parked or in some cases, believe it or not, still drifting out, unable to dock. Uh, and then all the ancillary businesses, whether it's retail or restaurants, uh, cars, uh, you know, uh, dry cleaners, everything that might be associated in the world of travel and tourism is essentially on hold and for the foreseeable future. That's right, Peter. And I, you know, this, this whole thing has uh, very profound implications, obviously, for not only for the travel business, but for virtually every business on the planet, I mean, 100 and 140 million, I guess, 100, certainly a million, four or more, 10 million people in Bangladesh. I was just reading an article about the fact that all of them are out of work and all the factories where they work are in the, in the midst of bankruptcy proceedings, all, all because of the fact that the world is shut down. And of course, 
those people have nowhere to run and lots of people here in the travel industry have nowhere to run either. It's just stopped. You know, when you take a look at the number of countries in the world and how many of them, which, by the way, is a majority of them, are completely dependent on travel and tourism for their foreign exchange. Talk about literally. We're not just coming up with a figurative thing here, but they literally cannot put food on the table uh, in Hawaii, for example resort closed, uh, no air service in. So many of their employees in the hotel and hospitality business are holding down two and three jobs. They they can't go anywhere. They have no plan B. We take a look at Las Vegas. I mean, imagine every resort, casino, hotel and uh, on the Strip and throughout the city and throughout the state now shuttered. Um, and those are just two examples in this country. You mentioned Bangladesh, but you go to Kenya or Tanzania, or Egypt, uh, countries that are totally dependent on travel and tourism. Uh, their airlines are basically parking planes that might not come back at all. Now, all true, all true Peter. I mean, they, it, it, it's hard to, you simply cannot overstate the importance of it or its dimensions. It is, it is a catastrophe in every sense of the word. Now, given all of your history and experience, Bob, when you've gone through somewhat, I'll, I'll qualify this, somewhat similar uh, disruptions in the past, there was, always no. a, there was always a sort of a way out that didn't take four years. There was sort of a way out, whether it was discounting or whether it was, you know, stimulating the environment with a with flyer program, something where you could look and say, OK, tough point now, but we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel right now? No, I don't think so, Peter. I think, uh, I, I mean, look, uh, you, you can make, you can, you can describe this any way you want it to describe it, but it is, as I said a moment ago, it, it, this is a full-fledged catastrophe, uh, from which there isn't going to be any immediate, uh, snapback. And that is, that is because of the fact that the, the central reality, the central point is that people no longer trust each other. And it, it isn't that they actively distrust the other person. They simply do not know and they have no way to know whether the person in, with whom they might come into contact is a carrier, whether they are symptomatic or asymptomatic. And until we recover that, until we get back to the point where we have testing that can, that can establish, uh, that uh, most of a given area, most of a given activity is safe, those activities aren't going to come back. We really have got a situation here where I think we are paying a terrible price for the incompetence and I, the incompetence of our long-term planners. This is, it's a political statement, but it isn't a political statement. It's not just Donald Trump. Uh, it's George Bush and, and uh, Obama and Trump all rolled into one. The U.S. government has published its, its most recent study. They published in October of 2019, uh, and they wrote, do not disclose on it and put it in the bottom drawer. And the U.S. government has been very much aware of this kind of threat for a long time, not been willing to do anything about it, and now we are paying the price. Look, Bill Gates, you, you know, you've seen that, you've, you've seen Bill Gates on TV a lot recently. Yeah. Bill, Bill Gates has been giving public talks about this for many years. So the, the problem is, that, well, we have a catastrophe, but it's a catastrophe that in a very real sense is self-induced because we refuse to believe that government has an essential, an essential role to play in modern life. Private enterprise cannot predict and cannot deal with catastrophes that, that impact. 
common good. We have to empower government to do that. And once we get through this, I sincerely hope we will take a far less jaundiced view of the role of government. I mean, isn't it ironic, Bob, that just about a month and a half ago, our focus was on a national political campaign, global warming, uh, climate change, and over-tourism. Well, guess what? There's no over-tourism right now. And the, and the political campaign, I forgot we were even having one right now. And, and now the focus really is, can we get through the next six weeks? Well, that's right. But the, that's the more, I mean, we will get through the next six weeks because there's no alternative. But the, of course, the greater problem is, what do we have to do to return our economy to a, 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 a sense of vigor? And I'm afraid that that requires a great deal of careful planning and, and a lot of careful activity that for the most part, we as a people have been unwilling to engage in. We just haven't been willing to do the planning. We haven't been willing to pay the price uh, in either dollars or preparation that would have been required to modify this event. Well, I'm not going to put you back in the chairman role at American, but I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Here you are running airline A, whatever airline A is right now. Do you have any idea? Or I should say, do you have any ideas as to what your first steps are going to be in short term and then any kind of long term planning to navigate essentially these uncharted waters? Well, the first thing I'm going to do, Peter, is I'm going to make sit down and I'm, I'm going to make a very, very careful and very conservative financial projection. Uh, in, in the short term, of course, I'm going to keep everybody on the payroll. And I'm going to do that because of the recently passed legislation that makes it financially feasible for me to do that. And I might say in passing, I think France has the right idea. If you're going to hand out money, I think the best way to hand out money is to simply give it to companies that tell them to keep everybody employed. And the reason for that is you take an airline, for example. An airline is a very complicated machine. And if you take the machine apart and suddenly there's a a burst of demand, you can't put the machine back together again unless you've got the people. So I keep everybody employed uh, and I would make a very, very careful financial projection so that I could say to the government, look, here's what here is what is needed to allow me to mothball mothball my fleet and keep all my people working for the, the 14 month period that I estimate will elapse before we are back to previous levels of demand. And people are going to look at me and they're going to say, wow, that is a big number. Bob, the, the, the airfare today from Miami to Los Angeles round trip, you're going to go nuts when you hear this. The round trip airfare from Miami to Los Angeles today on American Airlines is $40. Yeah, well, uh, with all due respect on that, and let's not talk about just American. I, I understand. I, I was told this morning that I can fly round trip from West Palm Beach to New York uh, on another carrier for eighteen dollars. I think that I think the airlines are making a big mistake, Peter. The issue isn't price. Uh, if I needed to go to New York, I'd be perfectly happy to pay a normal price to go to New York. And even if you said to me, "I'm going to take you to New York for a buck." I'm not going to go because I don't want to die, Peter. Exactly. You see, the point is, I think it's kind of silly to operate airplanes to, to, to offer seats for $40 when the out-of-pocket cost of operating that seat is way more than $40. You're better off to park the airplane. And yep. so I, I think I think the airlines ought to recognize that the, the particular problem now isn't, uh, isn't price. 
The problem now is public trust. And until we get public trust back, which the, and the airlines can do something to help, but they can't do a lot. The government really has to reestablish public trust by, by, by getting control of the virus, by getting, by, by getting a, a cure for the virus, by, by developing a, a, a vaccine to prevent the vi- virus, and then by, by providing testing mechanisms so that people can know that the place that they're going to go to and the people they're going to go with are safe. And when all of that happens, demand will reassert itself. We're going to first, first we're going to have to get back to the economy. So people have some money to spend. And then once they've got money to spend, they need to be able to trust one another and the vendors that they're buying from in order to train, in order to go back to travel. They, they want to travel, but they're not going to travel until they feel safe. They want their, they want their security blanket. Well, they want to, it's not a security blanket, Peter. It's, it's, it, it, it's real security. Look, I, you know, I, I'm uh, fortunate. I'm 85 years old. They, they tell me that if I get this thing, I'm probably going to die. So I don't want to get it. So, so for, I'm, for, for a man who's an airline guy, you're staying home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it. You got it. But it's all about self-preservation, Peter. I'm with you. <laughs> but what you're also saying, Bob, is that from a traditional uh, standpoint, this is not a situation where the airlines can discount their way out of this. No, they can't. They can. This really doesn't have anything to do with discounting. This has to do with public trust and and the airlines, uh, along with everybody else in the United States, all the rest of us, all have a role to play. Uh, the airlines, because they are major employers, uh, have an opportunity working with the government to keep their people employed, to keep to keep the, the, the sinews of the organization uh, stitched together so that when we get through this, uh, they can turn the machine back on. And uh, everybody else in, everybody else that's part of the public has a responsibility to stay home uh, until such time as we have testing and a cure and a vaccine. Sure. Well, so much of, of airline travel we took for granted, so much of travel in general we took for granted, we thought nothing of hopping on a plane and going to a major sporting event or a concert or to see friends and relatives or for business that, you know, we just want to have eye contact with the person we were doing business with. Today, we're no longer shaking hands. We're no longer we're, we're practicing social distancing. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are as to when we do come back and we do get that trust restored, how that's going to change the way we travel anyway and where we go to. Well, Peter, I think, I, I think this is going to teach us all some, some lessons. I, my guess is that a lot of what we learned during this period of time uh, will stick with us. Uh, my guess, for example, is that some modest percentage of business travel, uh, won't return that, that, you know, the use of, the use of electronic communications is so much more widespread and a lot more people know about it. So some of what we used to go do in person, we will do electronically. I think, I think likewise, uh, until such time as we have a real cure for this particular disease, uh, we, we're all going to be a lot more careful about washing our hands. I think we're, we, we might very well stick with the elbow bump as opposed to shaking hands. Uh, we're, we're certainly going to set higher standards 
for the cleanliness of the places where we are, whether they're retail, whether they're retail outlets or sporting venues. And I, I think with particular respect to travel, I think both the airline industry and the hotels uh, that operate in such close conjunction with them are going to be held to a very, very much higher standard of cleanliness than has been true in the past. Yeah, and, and some of the airlines have already announced, you know, a whole new protocol of cleaning that they're going to say is not only improved, but will maintain itself uh, from here on in. They're not just doing it for now. No, I think that's right. I think I, I think that there, there will be some from long term changes. Hey, when we come back, I want to get you for one more segment because you're the guy who I credit with starting the original frequent flyer program back in, I hate to say it, 1981. Yes, uh, I did do that. Yes, you did. <laughs> I've I've been a member since day one, Bob. My membership number starts with a zero. That's how that's how scary that is. <laughs> that's good. I know, but you know, we we've, we've all become addicted to the mileage programs, not just with with your former airline, but with every other airline. I always ask everybody if they're a member of a frequent flyer program, and they say yes, and I say how many and how many members are more than one, and all the hands still go up. So I guess the question is, if somebody's listening to this show. Who's, who's had difficulty, you know, cashing in their miles because of capacity and because of, uh, you know, popularity of certain destinations. I would suspect that within the next three months, as things start to open up, it would be a brilliant time to redeem those miles. Well, I would. I, I guess that's right, Peter. I think, uh, of course, the airlines have grounded very, very large percentages of their uh, capacity. So they're not going to be flying around just for the purpose of allowing people to catch in uh, frequent fire miles. On the other hand, as the industry begins to uh, put capacity back in the air, I, I would guess that for the next year or so, load factors will be less, uh, will be, won't be as high as they have been in recent times. And there might very well be an opportunity for people to use uh, some of their accumulated miles, which would be a good thing for the airlines. Because the more the public hears from their neighbor, friends and neighbors about what a wonderful free quote-unquote trip they had to Hawaii or San Francisco or New York or wherever, uh, the more they hear about that, the more they're going to say to themselves, well, maybe we should do that too. Let's get the kids and let's go. I feel better. I feel better now about the coronavirus. I think probably American or United or Delta, whoever it is, is doing a great job of keeping the airplanes clean. Uh, while there are still seats available, let's go. And by the way, one of you, by the way, dear, next time you buy something, be sure you get miles because I want to replace the miles we're about to use. <laughs> That's right. We're all still mileage junkies. I admit it, and uh, I, I don't regret it. Uh, at the same time, a lot of airlines right now are using this terrible crisis to say goodbye to older aircraft. Right there. American has parked 757s, United's parked 767s, Delta is probably going to park the old MD-88 overseas, Emirates uh, is retiring, uh, not Emirates, but, uh, uh, but Lufthansa and Air France and Singapore, among other carriers, are doing early retirements of a relatively young airplane, the A380. Well, if they, of course, that's right, Peter. But once again, uh, you know, they, this is a matter that you, 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 you put together a spreadsheet and you say to yourself, look, what is this airplane costing me? What's its, what's its scrap value? What, what does it cost me to maintain it if I continue to use it? Uh, you know, what are the net cash flows? How many seats can I sell at what price, et cetera? And out of some of those exercises, you reach the conclusion 
that uh, given given the fact that demand will be a lot less robust for the next couple of years, I suspect, than it was in the year preceding, uh, than it was in 2018, 2019, uh, they're going to reach some conclusions, as you say, about the wisdom of retiring some of their older airplanes and shrinking the size of the total fleet. Exactly. In fact, I left out that KLM flew their last 747 this week. Qantas flew their last 747 this week. And the average age of the A380s that they're, that they're retiring early is only about eight years. That's, that's astounding. Now that, that really is surprising, Peter. But of course the, the A380 had it, had a unique set of uh, challenges and its usability, its usefulness had been, has been tremendously diminished by the availability of long, of, of smaller but very long range airplanes, uh, exactly. which of course, which of course uh, allows the public to buy nonstop transportation a lot more often than they could in the past. And nonstop is what the public prefers. Exactly. And in fact, if you take the Emirates model, they have over 100 airplanes that are A380s. They have so many airplanes that they're actually using one of their flights from Dubai to Oman on an A380. That's a 40 minute flight, Bob. Yeah, I know. Well, JAL did uh, did that with 747s between uh, two very close together cities. (laughs) Now, some years ago. So, you know, if you get you get enough density, it makes sense. Uh, I guess so, but that, that wasn't what the plane was designed for, right? No, it is not what the plane was designed for, but, you know, the what you do, you, you do what you need to do. Hey, thanks for joining me on Ion Travel. In the meantime, be sure to head over to petergreenberg.com for the latest travel news on COVID-19, and I'll also be answering all your emails. I'll be back next week with another Ion Travel podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay safe. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Always on the go. Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. It's available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. 
Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.